Good morning, everyone. Again, thank you for the introduction. You get an A in the class. That was very good. I'd like to begin this morning by referring to something that Pastor Finley mentioned last night in one of the quotations and really appreciated the meeting. Did you last night? Amen. Um, he, in amongst other things that he shared last night, he referred to a quotation in the book Desire of Ages, page 550. Um, and it's talking about God's kingdom. And the quotation says, Christ was establishing a kingdom on different principles. That really pregnant thought. He called men not to authority, but to what? Anybody remember? To service. That's right, to service. The strong to bear the infirmities of the weak. And then there's this next sentence, which um, he read. I'd like to emphasize it, underscore it for you. Power, position, talent, education, place their possessor under the greater obligation to serve his fellows. Power, position, talent, education, place their possessor under the greater obligation to serve his fellows. It's a very different perspective. Uh, and, and too often, we have our power, position, talent, and education create in us a sense of entitlement or a sense of superiority. We're really, in any aspect, if we have been greater blessed than somebody else, that simply means I'm your servant. That's the principle of the cross. That's what is overturned as we consider the death of Jesus. So I just really wanted to underscore that. Uh, I think of an experience many, many years ago. We, my family and I lived in Africa in the country of Zambia and uh, was director of a mission station there. And one time I had to take our vehicle into town to get the tires rotated. And in order to get the, uh, the spare, the fifth wheel off, there was a little, you had to take this tool and you had to stick it in a little hole and twist it in order for it to drop down. And so we went to the tire place to get it changed. The guy that was doing it couldn't figure it out. And so I got out of the car somewhat irritated, I'm ashamed to say, but somewhat irritated to try to show him how to do this. You know, come on, you should know how to do this. And he just said to me, he said, you know, I've never seen this before. And, you know, in my home, it just was like, yeah, right. Like, how would he possibly know? And yet, too often, when we have education or position or authority, we think everybody should know. And when they don't, we assume this sense of superiority, where really it should be, oh, well, let me be a servant to you. So that really meant a lot to me last night. So this morning, we're concluding our series, and we're going to touch on what I just re related in relation to power as well. But I'd like to begin, first of all, by going back to the early um, centuries, Christian centuries, around 177, 180 AD. There was a gentleman by the name of, a man by the name of Celsus, who wrote a book against Christians. It was called On the True Doctrine, A Discourse Against the Christians. And pretty much he was arguing for three things. He was arguing for the status quo in the empire because Christianity was beginning to have this growing influence in it. His other critique, his other main concern in his book was that it's only the ignorant that would become believers in this crazy idea that a crucified savior could be your redeemer. 
You had to be extremely ignorant along those lines. So those were his two, two of his three main concerns. One, we need to keep things as the status quo. Nobody likes change, so keep things as they are. And then secondly, that it's only the ignorant, the foolish, that would believe the offense of the cross. His third critique of Christianity was that if this is true, then this God of Christianity is really very weak because his power is demonstrated in being crucified. And that to him, again, was this crazy idea. And he argues that the Christian God is too weak to stop Satan. That was one of his main critiques. If, there is, if what you're really saying is true, and there is this God, and he's crucified, he's really just very weak. And so he said this, does this mean that the Son of God can be beaten by the devil? As he looked at the cross, this was one of his main points of arguments. And so it raises a question for us. And yesterday I mentioned that there are certain metaphors in scriptures that are under attack in New Testament studies. And one of those metaphors is the whole idea of Christ being a substitute for us. The other metaphor is that Christ is really a victor for us. We would call it the great controversy. Uh, New Testament studies call it the cosmic conflict. But the idea that there really is a Satan that seems very, 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 very cute and antiquated. And you really don't believe something like that, do you? Well, Celsus was saying the same thing back in the second century. Really? Is the Son of God defeated by the devil? A quotation for you from uh, Writings of Ellen White. This is from third volume of the Spirit of Prophecy, page 195. Ellen White says this, the Christian world is not sufficiently acquainted with the history of Satan. And the terrible, what's that word? Power. Remember that for us, power is a platform from which to do what? To serve. But Satan has a power as well. The terrible power that he wields. Many look upon him as a mere imaginary being. This is really, obviously, very true. You just, really? I mean, last night was Halloween, and people dressed up as different things. Um, uh, sometimes satanic images, but really it's all in good fun because there is no satanic being called, or no evil being called Satan. She continues, meanwhile, he has crept into the popular mind. He sways the people. He assumes the character of an angel of light. He marshals his forces like a skilled general. He has gained profound knowledge of human nature and he can be, and can be, inserting the word he, he can be what? Logical, philosophical, or hypocritically religious. Interesting. Clothes himself as an angel of light. We really don't believe in this being. We can engage in philosophy. He can engage in logic. Or, as Mark said last night, he could be genuinely fake Christian. Hypocritically religious. But one of the great truths about the cross is that, that despite this looking like a defeat, it really is a triumph. So that's what I want to study with you this morning. If you can turn with me to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 11. And I'm going to look here in Revelation 11, starting in verse 15. And some questions that we need to ask. First of all, what's the setting? What's the background? What's the setting both 
physically and chronologically, where are we in the story, the narrative of Revelation? What's the setting? What's the background? Who's involved? What are they doing? Who are they? And what's their main focus? What's really taking place here? A few, few questions. Um, Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. What a beautiful little section here. Um, So if we ask, try to answer some of these questions, where are we in the flow of the book of Revelation? Well, it's the opening or the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And there's a disagreement within Seventh-day Adventism exactly as to when that is. Um, You may disagree with me. That's entirely fine. But as I read this section, the sounding of the seventh trumpet is right at the very end. Now, that's the next thing we see as the seventh trumpet, seventh, excuse me, seventh angel sounds his trumpet is this great song saying, God is taking his power. And so here we have this climax, a little bit like the opening of the seventh seal um, or coming down to the time of the seventh church. So here we have the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And there are loud voices in heaven. So obviously we're in heaven, but where are we in heaven? Who's there? Well, as we read the passage carefully, uh, John hears loud voices. The Revelation is full of loud voices, but he hears them in heaven. Particularly, he sees a group of people or a group of um, beings represented. And who are they? How are they described? They're the 24 elders. And what do they sit on? They sit on 24 thrones. They've been introduced in Revelation chapter 4 with the four living creatures. And they form part of a heavenly divine council. Divine council before which, by the way, Satan first began the great controversy. It was in front of this divine council that he first began his accusations in heaven. So here we have the uh, 24 elders. By assumption, the four living creatures were in this heavenly setting. We're in the throne room of God. We're in this divine council. And we're right at the very end pretty close to where we are today. And then what are they so excited about? Back in verse 15. They're crying out. They're saying the kingdom, the King James, I think, says the kingdoms, but would be better translated the kingdom of this world. And who has claimed authority of the kingdom of this world? Satan has. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, this raises a question for us. From the opening sections of the book of Revelation, particularly chapter 4, you see God's throne, you see God on his throne. 
But it's only now in the story of Revelation, now in the opening, uh, the sounding rather of the seventh trumpet, now at the very end that the heavenly council says, now the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Well, why is that? I mean, couldn't we say that now? I mean, Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6, holy, 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 uh, Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is what? Filled with his glory, right? But you know, it's interesting, when John quotes that passage in the book of Revelation, he doesn't add the phrase, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Well, why not? Because the way John's telling the story of the great controversy for us, the whole earth is not now full of God's glory. That only happens at the very end, when the heavenly council and God's people realize that the kingdom should belong to God. And so here we are in part of Revelation, where it comes to this climax, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. He will reign forever and ever. Someone should say amen to he's reigning forever and ever. Verse 16, the 24 elders, and they sit on their thrones. They're part of this divine council, sitting there on thrones in judgment. Before God, they fall on their faces. They fell on their faces and worship God. Verse 17, saying... We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty. That's a very familiar phrase in the book of Revelation referring to the Father. We, Lord God Almighty, who are and who were. Most of the times in Revelation, that's actually a threefold phrase. Who are, who is, and who was, and who is to come. That phrase, who is to come, is not here in Revelation chapter 11 because he's come. The kingdom is here. This is the point of God's intervention in human history uh, in that dimension. But notice particularly, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were. Why? Well, there's a clause here in this song that gives the reason for their gratitude, for their adoration, for their falling down off their throne, for their worshiping him. We're giving you thanks because you have taken your great power and begun or initiated your reign. Now, don't misunderstand me. There is an aspect of God reigning, for sure. But in Revelation's perspective, that reign of God is under attack. It's being hindered. Satan is claiming God's not worthy to reign. But here, and, and the Greek has a very... Uh, if I were to try to visualize it for you, let's kind of use this illustration. Imagine you're at a parade, and uh, there's different, different ways you can view the parade. Forget the parade. Let's think about eating lunch over at the pavilion. Uh, it was a beautiful setting. You know, there's different ways you can do it. The guy that's doing the videography here, the other day, he had a little drone out. I don't know if any of you saw it. A little drone out. He was taking pictures of you. You guys didn't notice. The drone was flying over the pond, and he had his camera, and he was taking a view of everybody eating. So that's kind of like this distant view. You know, it's, from the, it's from the drone. It's up in the air. It's kind of a distant view. But you know, he could zoom in a little bit more closely and, and not such have a panoramic view, but kind of zoom in a little bit closer. But then you could zoom in really close and get that full screen shot of you about to enjoy your meal. You know, just you know, zooming in much closer. 
In this passage in Revelation, there's first this panoramic view in the language John's using in the Greek that he's using. First, there's this panoramic view. But when he gets to the point, you have taken your power, that is a close-up shot. The, the focus of attention drives down in this song, you have taken your power and you have begun to reign. You're taking your power beginning to reign. And then it goes on and it talks about things that are less pleasant. In verse 18, the nations are enraged in reaction to God taking his power. The nations are enraged and God wrath comes again as a response. And then there's this time for the judgment as isn't described in the rest of verse 18. But this all raises a question. Uh, if God here is taking his power, how do we understand that? Well, power is a very important word in the book of Revelation. And for, before God can, from Revelation's perspective, take his great power, something has to happen. Satan needs to be unmasked. Satan needs to be unmasked. So in Revelation, there are um, several little sections where this heavenly council sings songs, hymn-like sections to God. They first start in Revelation chapter 4. They end in Revelation 19. It's interesting that in Revelation 4.11, power is another theme that's ascribed to God. Revelation 19, kind of at the very end of the book, here's this idea that power is ascribed to God. Revelation 7, in the middle of the book, in another one of these little hymn-like sections, power comes out again. It's amazing that running through the book of Revelation, through these songs in the book of Revelation, power is a continuous theme. In Revelation 11, God takes his power. He's grabbed it, and the spotlight, the close-up, comes on God taking his power and initiating his reign. Well, that raises a question for us. Because not only does God have power in the book of Revelation, but so does Satan. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Starting in verse 1, we see um, the end of Revelation 12. The dragon is angry. In Revelation 13, the dragon calls out one of his associates, the beast. The beast comes up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads in verse 2. Two, it describes the beast, and, and we might be very well aware of what this means in a historic context, but let's leave the historic application aside for a minute and try to see what John's doing in communicating to us, because in verse 3, at the end of verse 3, it says, and the, excuse me, at the end of verse 2, rather, and the dragon, and who's the dragon, by the way? Satan gave him, this is this beast, three things. What does he give him? What's the first thing? He gives him power. And then what's the other thing he gives him? Okay, a throne. King James would said seat. It's the word throne there. And he gives him great authority. Authority is repeated several times in Revelation 13. So here are these concepts coming together. The dragon gives his associate, the beast, great power, a throne, and great authority. Earlier in Revelation, we've seen that heavenly beings, particularly Revelation 7, 12, they ascribe power to Christ and to God. Uh, let's turn to Revelation 17 and verse 13 as well. 
Revelation 17 and verse 13. Toward the end of time, talking about this group of kings, ten kings, verse 13, it says, these have one purpose and they give their what? Power and authority to who? To the beast. Do you see the counter-imaging taking place? It's kind of a counter-image here. Power. On one hand, the dragon has power on he gives his power to the beast, and the beast uses that power to persecute and to coerce and to force people to worship. And the kings of the earth, they all come together, and they ascribe power to the beast as well. They're trying to support the system of persecution, of coercion, of force. On the other hand, you have God taking his power. And so the question is, as we read through Revelation, is does God exercise power the way the dragon does? Or are these counter-images? opposite images, where the dragon has power, Satan has power, but God has power as well, but it's interpreted in a different way. Well, it's true. It is interpreted in a different way, and that is, in the book of Revelation, power is interpreted through the cross of Christ. Turn back with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. We see that Christ's death becomes the interpretive lens through which we need to see God's power. And in Revelation 5, uh, there's a lot here that I'm going to resist talking about. But in Revelation chapter 5, we see the slain lamb as the center. There's a great question. Who's worthy to open the book? John hears the lion from the tribe of Judah, a kingly, authoritative image. He turns to see this authoritative image. And then in verse 6, what does he see? A lamb having been slain. A lamb in the very act of being slain. And then in verse 11, we see another chorus, another song by the heavenly council. And it says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive what? Power. First place. Only place, first place in the book of Revelation where there are seven blessings ascribed to one of the heavenly beings, the father or, or the lamb. But power is placed in the first position. What's John trying to tell us? Well, you want to see power? Well, there's two ways to look at power. You can look at the power of the dragon in which you use your position, your education, and your talents as a platform for authority. Or you can look at power from the perspective of the slain lamb. And you could use your position, your talents, and your education as a platform for service. And in the book of Revelation, Christ's death interprets interprets for us, reinterprets for the world, the meaning of power. Let's go to Revelation 12, in verse 10. Again, another song sung by this heavenly council where power and authority come together. Revelation chapter 10. We know that this verse describes the great controversy, the war that began in heaven. Verse 10, then I heard a loud voice in heaven. So again, this, this kind of a a proclamation in the divine council saying, now the salvation, perhaps we could interpret that victory, and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. 
and he accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. So here we see a song that we can, that's directly connected to the blood of Christ. We, we'll see in a moment the connection here with the cross of Christ. But once again, it says salvation, power, kingdom. And it draws it back to the death of Jesus. Now in Revelation's story, Revelation 11 is the place where God fully takes his power and begins to reign. Because that's, at that point in the story, everybody has come to a point where they've chosen what side of the cross they want to be on. They've chosen what kind of power they want to embrace. They've chosen whether they want to use what they have for their own power or as a platform for service. They've come to the point in Revelation 11 where they realize God is worthy of worship. Now, of course, Revelation continues until chapter 19 and 20, 21. But here in Revelation 12, again, we see power, kingdom, and authority, and it's linked with the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, and the casting down of Satan. Of course, any reader of the New Testament is going to think of Jesus' word in John chapter 12, 30 to 32, where Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the prince of this world is what? Cast down. And he's speaking of his death at the cross. So clearly, the death of Jesus is a point in salvation history where we really see how God's power is manifest. And it's manifest through what? Self-sacrifice. That's where the strongest power is. The strongest power in the universe isn't coercion or force. The strongest power in the universe is love. Now, Satan doesn't believe that, and Satan tries to get us not to believe it as well, so that we use our position, authority, and education, and talents, and training, and knowledge as a platform for superiority. But really, it should be this, wow, I mean, I know more than you do. How can I serve you? How can I help you? And yet the pride of our hearts is so opposite that. Where we just well up, man, you didn't know that. Uh, uh, it probably doesn't ever happen among physicians. Pastors, probably, but not physicians. Again, in Desire of Ages, page 761, uh, Ellen White describes how it was at the cross that, again, Satan is unmasked. And this cry of heaven goes out. Now the accuser of our brethren is cast down. Turn with me to the book of Colossians. Um, again, as we move there, let's keep in mind that Christ's death is a powerful, the slain lamb in Revelation, is the mechanism that reinterprets the image of power for us in Revelation. And God does not, in the book of Revelation, all of a sudden begin to take the devil's tools and use him for his own advantages. We misread Revelation if all of a sudden we think, okay, well now at the very end, God begins to act like Satan. That's totally upside down. But power as God displays it, and there is a judgment in Revelation, don't misunderstand me, I'm not denying that, but we need to understand that whenever God in Revelation displays his power, it is interpreted through the slain lamb. That is where we see how God rules the universe. Colossians chapter 2, great passage for us. Um, 
Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Before we go there, I just want to re-emphasize something. Uh, the word blasphemy, in Revelation, that word's used a lot. And oftentimes, we think about blasphemy in relation to what? So if I were going to give you a quiz, where's my A student? Uh, no, if I were to give you a quiz on blasphemy, uh, how would you interpret blasphemy? What is blasphemy? A little louder. Somebody that wants to become God. And then in a, an evangelistic context, we might refer to a particular power that claims those prerogatives, right? Either to forgive sins or to have the place of, of God, uh, place of God here on earth. And that's certainly true. Jesus makes that very clear. But blasphemy also has a very another powerful connotation, particularly in the book of Revelation. And blasphemy is related to slander, to slander, to maligning. And that's what we see in Revelation, that God is being maligned. He's being misrepresented. And then that needs to be overturned, that maligning, that misrepresentation of God needs to be maligned. And in fact, Satan's artful deceptions of trying to cast God in his attributes and Satan's own attributes have been intimately, excuse me, and continually successful. Listen to this quotation. This is from letter 16A, 1892. Satan could not be presented to the universe at once in his real character. His crooked course must be allowed to continue until he should reveal himself as the accuser, deceiver, liar, and murderer. In the latter act, Satan uprooted himself from the affection of the loyal universe. In the death of the Son of God, the deceiver was unmasked for the heavenly universe, for the heavenly council. But you are not yet convinced, and neither am I fully. And that's part of what's happening in the book of Revelation, is that the story is trying to get a point where, where the earthly group can see what the heavenly council already sees, and that is that God really is worthy of worship. And we see that by continually coming back to the cross. So Revelation, excuse me, Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, that's God, made you alive together with him, with Christ. How did he do that? Having forgiven us all our transgressions. Amen. Let's see. You know, Dr. Lamb has tried to get you guys to be more amenish last night. For an organization that that's your name. <laughs> Just saying. Verse 14. So he's forgiven us all our transgressions. Verse 14. And this is a contested passage. I think the King James says, um, having blotted out the handwriting of ordinances which were against us and are contrary to us. And that expression, handwriting of ordinances, chirographon, is, it's something being handwritten. Um, and usually in evangelistic purposes, we will say, well, that's the ceremonial law that was blotted out, taken away by the cross. And I don't want to deny that truth at all, that the ceremonial law is set aside. But look at this from a different perspective with me, and I'm reading from the New American Standard, verse 14 having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees which was against us. 
hierographon is used in the first century as a handwritten IOU, certificate of debt, a IOU this amount of money, whatever it is. Whatever this is, this chirographon, this handwriting, whether it's the ceremonial law which points us to our need of a sacrifice and a savior because of our sin, or if it's this handwriting of debt which is a record of our sin and transgression, what happens to it? Three things. It's blotted out or it's canceled. Secondly, it's taken out of the way. Thirdly, it's nailed to the cross. A tremendous picture for us. You know, that this certificate of debt, our IRU, our, our, our debt back to God, is blotted out, it's wiped off, it's erased. It's taken out of the mist. It's gone. It's nailed to the cross in the body of Jesus Christ. Verse 15. When he, speaking of God in Christ, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display over them, having triumph over them through it or through the cross. What's Paul saying there in verse 15? That the death of Christ is not only the place where their certificate of debt, of debt is gone, where everything's removed, but it's also the place where Christ triumphs over the rulers and authorities, the powers in heavenly places. And the image that Paul brings to view here is like a Roman emperor who comes back into the city of Rome and he's triumphant. And when he would come back, behind his chariot would be these slaves who had been conquered in war and they'd be running after the slariot. Chariot, you know, he's, dis- he's triumphed over them. He's victorious over them. Satan has been unmasked and is defeated. Where? At the cross. That's where we see what Satan's character is really like. That's where we see what God's character is really like. That's where we see where true power is. Not in the power of nailing someone to the cross. Not in the power of mocking him. Really... Amazing that as Jesus is being crucified, they mock him. Hail, king of the Jews. They think this is tremendously funny. You're a king, ha, ha, ha. But really, he is a king. He's a king who's willing to lay down his own position in the universe that you and I might share his throne. He's a king. He's got power to save, but he does it by not saving himself. And that's what the cross reveals to us. That's the impact of the cross. Satan is unmasked in heaven before the heavenly agencies. We see that he is a liar, the the divine counsel, the heavenly beings say. But the question is, are we seeing it? That's why this whole great controversy continues. When Jesus cried out, it is finished. From heaven's perspective, it was almost completely finished. But not from our perspective. We're still trying to come to the point, do we really believe it? Do we really believe that God's worthy of our adoration and rule? Do we really believe that the best way to demonstrate my authority is to be a servant to others? That's what the cross reveals to us. Um, I'd like to share a little bit about uh, Viktor Frankl. Many of you probably know Viktor Frankl. He was in a concentration camp, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. A very tremendous book, and how he, in the concentration camp, he noticed that when people would come into the concentration camp, 
he'd see individuals that were, you know, large and buff, kind of like me. And, uh, but those individuals would often die quicker. They didn't really have the ability to come into the concentration camp. And then he would see other individuals who looked like frail or, or not very healthy or not being really able to stand. And he found out that oftentimes they would survive. And he began to ask, well, what's the difference here? What's going on? And he came to the conclusion that the thing that helped people live in the concentration camp was, did they have something to live for? Did they have a meaning in their life? Aren't you grateful that Christianity gives you a meaning in life? Like way beyond the size of the houses on this beach, as beautiful as they are. Way beyond anything like that. The meaning in life is to serve people. And so the individuals that came into the concentration camp, Frankel said, no, this is what's keeping people alive. And he went on you know, to teach this after the war and wrote his book, Man's Search for Meaning, that it's, it's when we find something bigger than we are and we find something worth living for, that can help us go through all the difficulties, all the vicissitudes of life, because there's something larger. My friends, the cross is much larger than anything in this world. But as they would leave the concentration camp, they had to take their caps off as they worked off, walked out of the camp, and they would be counted. Yeah, one, two, three, caps off. They'd take their caps off, and they'd go out. And, and Frankel describes as he was walking out, he would look up into the blue sky. Everything else is barren around him, but he'd look up to the blue sky, and occasionally he would see the face of his wife in his imagination. And it just was, you know, he could see every smile and the glint of her eyes, and, and it gave him strength. And he would do that. He would begin to think of his wife, and, and he tried to try to behold her. And then he writes this, I understood how a man who has nothing left in this world may still, still may know bliss, be it only for a brief moment, in the contemplation of his beloved. In the middle of a concentration camp, horrendous activity all around him. I can just look in the sky and see or imagine the face of my wife. I'm at bliss. No matter where we are in the world, we can have the same experience in the contemplation of our beloved. And as powerful is, as it might be to contemplate our spouse, a loved one, the one that we really need to contemplate is the beloved, Jesus Christ. Ellen White writes this, The angels ascribe honor and glory to Christ, for even they are not secure except by looking to the sufferings of the Son of God. The heavenly council, they see that power is reinterpreted through the suffering of Christ. She goes on to say, it is through the efficacy of the cross, through the ability of the cross to have power. It is through the efficacy of the cross that the angels of heaven are guarded from apostasy. Angelic perfection failed in heaven. Human perfection failed in Eden. All who wish for security in earth or heaven must Look to the Lamb of God. It's in the contemplation of our beloved that we can be at bliss under any circumstance, that we can be at peace in the most difficult mission field, whether it's overseas or whether it's in Rochester, Minnesota, or wherever it is, or in Boston, or in Kettering, whatever your mission field is, wherever you are, and how difficult it becomes, a contemplation of the beloved, realizing yeah, I've got education, I have talents, I have something to offer to the world. I am a servant, as was my master. 
and the only security is at the cross of Christ. Uh, another quotation, Ellen White says this, as we stand at the foot of the cross and behold the infinite sacrifice made in our behalf, we shall be humbled and subdued. I love that. You know that we, sometimes we sing or we teach people to sing that song. Uh, how does it go? Humble me so that I can do your will. You know that song? Mm. Don't ever sing that song. I'm sorry. We, who am I to tell you what to do? Um, I think it's in the early writings, Ellen White counsels us, we should not pray for God to humble us. Because if he humbles us, it's going to be fairly distasteful. The scriptures tell us to humble ourselves. What has the effect of humbling our pride? Coming to the cross, standing there, looking at it. Really? Four crucifixion narratives are the main description to try to tell us, yeah, this is how God's going to save the world. He's going to become incarnate, and he's going to die on an object of offense and shame and horrendousness and weakness and nakedness and pain. That's where your salvation is. And you think you have talents and ability? You think you have education? Come to the cross. It puts everything into perspective. Our hearts will be filled with a desire to practice the self-denial and self-sacrifice seen in Christ's life. Self will sink out of sight. All worldly ambition, all desire for earthly gain will be quenched. Where? Simply by taking time to survey the cross. The cross, excuse me. We shall count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. Our highest aim will be to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable to his death. Is that your highest aim, my friends? Is that your highest desire? If it's not, there's a remedy. What's the remedy? No, try harder, look longer. Uh, yesterday, as we talked about, when we lift the cross, the cross lifts us. Uh, Dr. Mills said, well, it only lifts us if we're on it. That's true. That whole idea of crucifixion, very important. But there's a way that everything that we have, that the world has taught us to think of in a certain venue, you know, I, I understand for physicians, medical missionaries, professional medical missionaries, there's a certain pressure to live in a certain kind of house or to drive a certain kind of car or to have a certain kind of a status. Where does all that pressure come from? It comes from the world. And the cross puts it all in the right perspective. Because there we see the one with all power, the Lord God Almighty, the omnipotent one, the one that can create everything, the one that knows way more about physiology than you ever hoped to will, even begin to scratch the serpents, came down and yielded himself on a cross. Because to have position means to serve. We will count everything lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. Have you enjoyed this weekend? Pray that the seminars have been helpful for you and the, the plenary sessions have been helpful for you and the time Thinking about the cross has been helpful for you, but as we end, as we draw this part of the session to a close, the, I guess we have breakfast after this, an appeal to you. Let Christ 
reinterpret your life. Reorder your priorities. Now many of us, you know, have oh no, I know what my priorities are, but there needs to be a need, there needs to be a deeper reprioritization, a relooking at how do I handle everything that's God that God has given to me? Am I getting my view of the world from the cross? That's the place for our security. That's the place for our transformation. That's the place where we get our greatest joy. In Revelation, the heavenly council, 24 elders, four living creatures, angelic beings, they're all convinced already. They're just waiting for a group of people here down below, a group of medical missionaries, to say, you know, we've been living the wrong way. I'm too proud of the way I preach, or I'm too proud of my uh, medical education, or I'm too proud of my house, or I'm too proud of my wife, or I'm too proud of something. Let's turn it all upside down, or perhaps all right side up, and realize that as we look through the light of the cross, everything is put in its right order. Do you need that humbling? I know I do. Again, Desire of Ages, that beautiful quotation that pride and self-sufficiency cannot flourish in the heart that keeps fresh in mind the scenes of Calvary. Pride and self-sufficiency can not flourish. They are starved out because the cross is so different. There's no nutrients. There's, there's nothing in the soil of the cross that lets pride and self-sufficiency grow cannot flourish in the heart that keeps fresh in mind the scenes of Calvary. Let's not let that end with this conference. But may your ministry as a whole, your medical ministry as a whole, be interpreted through the death of Christ on the cross. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Thank you for the totally counterintuitive, upside-down way you want to save us. Really, a man crucified, reflecting who you are, dealing with our issue of sin, bringing forgiveness, bringing mercy, showing the kind of rule that you have in the universe. Father, may that cross continue to make an influence in our hearts, humbling us, subduing us, making us more like Jesus. Teach us, Father, to take all that you've given us, put it on the altar of the cross in service to others. I pray, Father, that you'd bless every attendee that's come here, every medical professional, medical missionary, whatever sphere, and that as they go back to their field of labor, Father, it would be with a renewed commitment, with a higher picture of how every aspect of their practice, their life, their ministry, their education, all is purchased by the death of Jesus. We thank you in his name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.